It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day there, Mark Kenny here, and thanks for checking into this episode of Democracy Sausage. I hope you're surviving the lockdown so far. The economy is our main focus this week as we come to terms with the horrendous news from overseas, and particularly from our closest friends, Britain and the United States. Both have handled the pandemic poorly, a fact being written in Lives Lost, now measured in the thousands. In America, few doubt that the death toll will surpass 50,000 and could double that or worse. In Britain, where Boris Johnson narrowly survived the virus himself, the fatality rate is actually higher, even if the overall numbers are lower. The Johnson government admits it has made mistakes, things like initially pursuing a herd immunity approach, Boris Johnson's cavalier attitude towards shaking hands with everybody, missing multiple meetings, that kind of thing, and failing to coordinate with the EU. At least they are capable of self-reflection in London. In Washington, the boastful oaf in the White House never does any of that, and he has in recent days been entreating his supporters to rise up against authorities attempting to manage the health emergency. Personally, I think we're in danger of missing the significance of this given Trump's mercurial adolescent behaviour, which has become so normal we've become desensitised. The president, no less, is now a material threat to life and to national stability, making him the most dangerous president in his country's history. Now, let's get to the discussion. Joining me, as always, is the ANU political scientist, Dr Maria Teflaga, from the School of Politics and International Relations. Welcome, Maria. Hello, everyone. Also from the ANU is Professor Robert Brunig, who is the Director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage, Bob. Thanks, Mark. Hi, Maria. And I'm especially delighted to be welcoming the ABC's Chief Economics Correspondent, Emma Alberici. And Emma, it really is terrific to have you join us. And it's great to be here. Hi, Mark. Hi, Maria. Hi, Bob. Now, I'm very keen to get into tax policy and to the state of the economy and the reform task ahead of the government. But first, let's get an assessment from each of you as to what the overall situation is, what is going to be the hit to the global economy, uh, and I guess, therefore, to the national economy as well. Obviously, there's a fair amount of guesswork going on here. We don't know how deep this is going to be in terms of a recession. We don't know how long the virus is going to be around 
and we don't know whether there's going to be second waves and these kinds of things, as are uh, afflicting countries like Singapore and Japan at the moment. Certainly the IMF uh, uh, paints a fairly bleak economic forecast at the moment. Global growth down by 3% this year. Australian growth down by 6.7% this year and uh, and perhaps worse next year. So uh, notwithstanding that we're making uh, some, some guesses here, really, some assumptions, uh, how bad do you think it will be? I think it's going to be pretty bad, Mark. I, you know, I, I think it's interesting to see the Australian stock market having gone up in the in the past week as people seem slightly relieved by news of of flattening curves and such. But the reality uh, of of the kind of depression that we're going to go into around the world, I don't think, has hit people yet. Uh, and and the real, you know, one of the real problems here is that we're going to have to keep our borders sealed off for quite some time. And I think this also is going to lead to a big feeling of, you know, maybe we're too interconnected with the rest of the world and maybe it would be better if we were less connected to the world. And those kind of sentiments hurt Australia really badly. Yes, Australia is very much an economy built on exporting. We are very much part of the world culturally as well. We travel a lot. Uh, Globalisation has been, I think we would say, a net good for Australia. But Emma, do you think that's right, what Bob's saying, that we in fact could be facing um, tendencies against globalisation, that uh, there might be people who are who are wanting us to uh, become a bit more isolationist? We see that trend in the US, of course. Could that also be coming to Australia? I think inevitably there will be, yes. And I think who that hurts more than anyone is a country like Australia that relies so heavily on investment from the US and, of course, trade with China. A lot of people uh, understand our relationship with China and are less cognizant of the links we have with the US economically because, of course, they are our biggest investor. The problem... I see going forward is how we mesh the ethical, political and economic questions. And that is we have to confront the reality we are now faced with that China doesn't necessarily know whole truths about uh, what's happening. It makes uh, calculations that we all need to engage in much more difficult and China's economy is shrinking. That is the worst news for us because we rely on them as our chief customer. Now, if if we re-engage in the way we did before with a country like China, I think we need to ask some hard questions about what that looks like. Yes, China is just so important, especially now that it's contracting negative growth. Thinking back to the GFC, the coalition always argued it wasn't Kevin Rudd's stimulus spending, but China's ongoing growth that kept us out of the recession back in 2009 and the years after. Now, if China is in recession, we've lost that protection too. I guess the only silver lining is if we get extra steel and iron ore sales out of uh, Beijing if it embarks on massive infrastructure spending to stimulate its way back to growth. Indeed. And and also we need to consider the IMF, for instance, is saying that, um, yes, we contract by some uh, 6.7%, I think they said this year, the, the worst since the Great Depression, as you say, Mark. They also predict it's going to rebound next year to something like 6%, which would be the best result since the mid-80s and the second strongest for half a century. Now, that's so bullish and so remarkable as to seem 
a little fanciful, frankly, because I can't understand what what conditions would prevail that would allow that kind of, for lack of a better term, snapback. Um, I'm not sure what you think about that, Bob, but I think that's uh, a little a little uh, a little more optimistic than I can imagine is possible given all these hard questions we're going to have to ask ourselves. And also what's happening in the US is so incredibly troubling. I mean we can on we used to on some level kind of just scratch our heads and occasionally smirk at the things that were happening in the White House. It's now the the decisions that Donald Trump is now making, I think a, uh, a posing an existential threat to our economic and overall well-being internationally, and I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that's the reality. Yes, I'd like to get your thoughts, Bob, about snapback. Uh, but Maria, can I just bring you in here to hear your assessment on the US? Someone I read recently said that we need President Trump right now. What we've got is candidate Trump. I guess politics is perhaps the only explanation for the extraordinary way Donald Trump is behaving, whipping up Tea Party recalcitrants to defy health orders and such like. I think it's one of the most disturbing um, sort of images out there at the moment, apart from obviously the sort of cost to human lives. Um, I guess what is sort of um, very interesting about um, the Trump phenomena at the moment is that it, there was some data put out, I think, last week by The Economist showing uh, support for leaders um, across the uh, world since the pandemic um, has sort of struck. And what was really interesting about that was that our own Prime Minister has done very well out of the pandemic with, I think, almost a 20% improval, improvement in his approval rating. Um, whereas Trump um, was actually still managing to register some um, improvement in his overall approval rating, which is remarkable given everything, um, and that only two countries seem to be going uh, backwards in terms of their leaders, which was uh, Brazil and um, Japan. And in many ways we would sort of expect that because that's sort of what happens at a time of national crisis. You sort of get a, a rallying um, around the flag. Uh, but I guess as an observer um, a long way away from the United States, um, it, it does sort of – I mean, it's been interesting to sort of see how people have made the argument that federalism is one of the things stopping the United States from being able to coordinate effectively. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case when you look around the world at other federal states have actually done quite well. But given um, given the lack of um, like a leadership and how erratic it is, federalism perhaps overall in the wash, even though the centre has been very ineffective at leading, might be the thing that ends up actually saving more American lives. Um, and I think what is, I guess, most disturbing is that Trump is unleashing forces that I don't think any of us can pretend to understand and it's actually not really clear where they will end. I mean, he's literally inciting people to um, defy uh, public health emergency orders to stay at home, um, to go out and protest Um and uh, to perhaps do that um, in in a violent way, like that is disturbing. And it's funny, isn't it, that you see those images of people out there protesting, but they're still wearing masks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, Germany and Australia, both federations, are now cited as exemplars of how to respond to the pandemic. So it's not necessarily just a, 
a question of you know federations not being able to work. They can work. But what do you think, Bob, uh, regarding America? Is the federal state division of responsibilities, in fact, going to be the last line of defence, probably going to protect Americans from their own national government? Mark, I feel like I need to make a certain disclaimer here, given my American accent, um, which is that uh, I have lived in Australia for 22 years, and I'm my political uh, nous is pretty much zero. I I, pre- I predicted a resounding uh, victory for Hillary Clinton in the last election, um, and so I think the kind of people I talk to in America maybe aren't necessarily uh, the same people that Trump is speaking to. It is interesting, though, that what he's doing here is playing the wedge that the Republicans have been playing for the last 20 years, which is the city against the country. And rural people haven't felt the impact of the coronavirus in the same way that urban people have. Uh, Rural people distrust the urban people. They distrust the urban elites. They associate them with the Democrats. And you know, given the strong religiosity in rural America, this might look like some kind of divine retribution for those Democrats who are running those cities. And and that's the wedge that I think Trump is clearly playing. And it's a wedge that's been pretty effective. He's shown that you don't need to win the majority of votes to become president. You just need to win the right set of votes in the right number of states. Um, it's totally disturbing. But I, but I guess I'm just saying that I'm not... Um, I'm not entirely mystified by it because it does seem to match other things that we've seen. Well, let me say when you made that disclaimer about having zero political experience or now, so it occurred to me that if you knew even less, you might even be able to become president yourself. <laughs> Certainly the current guy didn't have a lot of experience when he got there, but nonetheless, as you say, he's actually proved in some ways, dark though they may be, to be a very effective political operator. He manipulates the situation to his own advantage with utter abandon while never showing the slightest grasp of policy matters he's ruling on. But look, take us back to this question of snapback. It's kind of disturbing, Mark, to hear you describe the American president as kind of not having a clue about anything, and, and none of us can object because it's just such a factual statement. But um, So I'm, I'm not really going to wave at that one any more than that. But, but yeah, on the, on the question of snapback, again, there's a lot of money to be lost by making predictions about what the economy is going to do in the future. What what seems clear to me is that when restrictions are relaxed, there will be a lot of pent up demand for things like travel and going out to restaurants and and that sort of thing. I guess the problem is, will people have the incomes to be able to support those kind of desires? So it looks to me like it it could go either way. And also, I you know, will we be able to travel internationally? Will airlines reopen routes and and will people be able to leave the country and come back into the country, or will they be afraid of leaving the country and getting stranded uh, somewhere in a in a mountaintop in the Andes? So, Emma, this began in Hubei province, of course, but even after amending its death toll upwards in recent days, China says it's just sitting at 4,632. Now, that's obviously a lot of deaths, but US now leads the world, of course, with deaths above 40,000 and still growing strongly, rather sadly. Yeah, for many weeks, it was Italy out in front, uh, a tragic death toll there. Why was that? So I was there just to clarify. I was there uh, end of December, uh, sorry, end of November, beginning of December, uh, because we were producing a foreign correspondent half-hour documentary on 
the uh, Nigerian mafia's presence in Italy, which obviously had nothing to do with the health crisis that was already by that stage patently uh, percolating. Um, now, just, just for a little bit of background on that, because subsequently I did the half hour on what was happening in Italy, I did it remotely. So we focused on Milan because that's where my family is and uh, we did it via Skype and using a cameraman and producer on the ground um, to the extent that they were allowed to move around and film. And most people who were in our film uh, shot at themselves on an iPhone, which I think is quite troubling for our executives and all TV executives to know that that's Yes, there's a lot of that creative improvising being done all around the economy and one wonders whether that will remain the case when this is all over. Now, um, a few things that I think are worth repeating about why Italy was hit so hard and it goes back, if I can double back to my earlier comment about China not necessarily being transparent in its assessment of the virus in the early days, which lost us all critical time and lives, and especially so in Italy. Now, why in Italy? Why in the north of Italy? Well, three flights a week were landing from Wuhan into Milan right up until February because, as a lot of people know, Hubei province is like as people explained it to me at the time, like the Detroit of uh, China. And Milan is the centre of industry uh, for Italy. And so there's a lot of interaction between companies in Wuhan and in Italy based in Milan. So putting that to one side, you can see why there was so much human interaction and so much trade and commerce going on between the two places and that is a lot of what was behind the outbreak uh, that began in the north of Italy and which took off so virulently because I guess they didn't have a lot of fact to base their decisions on because they only had China and a little bit of South Korea to look at for guidance. Now you ask me, Mark, what the mood is like there now versus then, they're still in lockdown and they've been in lockdown since February, since um, end of of February, I think it was, um, the 24th of February. So, and it's been a pretty severe lockdown that got more so as the days and weeks dragged on such that, and it's remarkable for me in Sydney in the area of Randwick where Centennial Park is because Randwick is a hotspot in New South Wales. It's where I live. And it doesn't surprise me that it's a hotspot because when you see the way people behave and the other place being Waverley where Bondi Beach is, when you see the way people behave in Centennial Park, it's heaving. The the sun is out at the moment and this week the sun is going to be out every day and I think Friday's hitting 27 degrees People are everywhere in the parks. And in Italy, in Milan, they had to close the parks because people were seeing that as another way of getting together. And so the mood in Italy is very sombre because there are still not enough answers to base solid decision-making on. And so they are really you know, shooting at fish in a barrel. They don't know what they're doing, policymakers. So, And they're being very honest about that, that they don't know enough to be confident 
about winding back the um, the lockdown and the shutting down of, of frankly, every type of business except absolutely essential services. So the mood is sad because they don't have a lot of faith that their policymakers know what they're doing, but I'm not sure who does at this point. So I'm not sure if I've given you much to go by there, but even things like, you know, I see in the press, because I was speaking so long ago, it feels like now, lockdown hours feel like years, um, but, you know, talking back then in February to virologists and epidemiologists in Italy who are really world leaders who split their time with, you know, countries across Europe and the US and so on, and they were troubled by the lack of knowledge that scientists didn't know even about, you know, anything to do with the gene sequence of this virus until the 10th of January. So this did not exist in science until a few months ago. So the idea that we even know what's going to happen to this virus when the summer months hit in the um, in the northern hemisphere and when and when the opposite happens here, we don't know if when the um, the winter comes, it's going to be worse here. We don't know if it's that kind of thing. It's not the flu. So we just don't know enough. And so I'm not sure how we snap back. How do we do that? What do we base those decisions on when the science is still so flimsy? Yeah, that is the central question. I noticed that the EU recently apologised to Italy for letting it down in the first crucial weeks. Yes. I guess that goes to the lack of understanding about this new pathogen and how deadly it would turn out to be. And in the beginning, Milan was sending face masks masks to Wuhan, so that's one of the reasons they had no PPE when it hit them like a ton of bricks because they had such terrific trade links with Wuhan. They sent all their face masks and protective equipment there, so they had none when it hit them. So, you know, when they needed it quickly and urgently from the EU, the EU was a bit slow to react. So there's a lot of reflection to be done, but I don't think it's healthy, frankly, to engage in the kind of finger-pointing that the Trump administration has begun to demonstrate. I mean, taking funding away from the World Health Organization is one of the most idiotic, I'd have to say, uh, reactions to this pandemic. They are in no way partisan or, you know, everyone has fumbled along the way here because of the known unknowns. And there are going to be plenty more of those. But I think attacking each other doesn't serve anyone well during this. I mean, and certainly taking away from the one body that is multilateral and, you know, unaligned is, you know, completely at odds with what we need right now. And and especially when you understand that we weren't, you know, back to what I was saying about the unreliability of the data from China, we realised that the World Health Organisation, when they realised that there wasn't reliable data coming from China, they went there themselves to see firsthand. And that's when we started to understand more about what was happening and how dangerous this virus was. It was on account of the World Health Organization's proactive moves to discern that for themselves. And the fact that we're now punishing them for acting too slowly on something they didn't know about, 
I think is um, is crazy. Well, let's say the Australian government did declare a virus of pandemic potential a couple of weeks before the WHO did. That seems prescient now and kind of vindicates concerns over the WHO's performance, does it not? Oh, indeed. Absolutely. But again, I think saying, okay, well, Australia was there first, so we should punish the World Health Organization for not having been there. Remember, we were acting on everything but within Australia's best interest. The World Health Organization is governed by however many, um, 160, 70, whatever it is, nations whose interests they have to balance in making decisions for, you know, that sort of take for everyone. I think, you know, I wouldn't want to be the Prime Minister of Australia. I wouldn't want to be the health of the, the head of the World Health Organisation. I think these jobs are, you know, harder than they've ever been. We'll take a quick break there and when we come back, we'll focus a bit more on the Australian economy, the recession and the path out. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now let's go to the Australian economy. Early on, Scott Morrison was proud to say there'd be no fiscal hangover, but frankly, the Australian economy is going to be popping aspirin for some years to come after this big spend. Some, of course, will argue for more stimulus spending to speed growth, and I guess some will argue for cuts for budget repair. What do you think, Bob? I doubt that's what we're looking at. And I doubt that's what we're looking at because I think it's relatively obvious that that would be unwise. The thing we're going to need after this uh, pandemic is is a recovery. Now, whether it's the quick snapback that we talked about earlier or whether it's a more gentle recovery, uh, we're going to need that. We are going to have to repay uh, the money that we're spending. So we're spending a lot of money on things like the JobKeeper program and fighting the pandemic. We're going to have to continue to spend money after the pandemic or or once things settle down a little bit in order to stimulate the economy. There are some people who believe that we're never going to have to pay that back, that we can just sort of borrow it from ourselves and those chooks will never come home to roost. I'm not in that camp. However, interest rates are currently very, very low, which means that we can postpone paying that back or pay it back slowly with probably not too great a consequences. So Emma, the way the economy works, the way the budget is configured, taxing and spending, 
All of these things are going to be open to review. It's a, it's a pretty big shift. This government won last year on a very spare agenda of budget surpluses, of tax cuts for the wealthy, all based on jobs and growth. Well, already there could be millions fewer jobs and, well, no growth. So on the other side, Labor was rejected for its ambitious tax and spend plans on franking credits, negative gearing, capital's ga- capital gains ca- tax concession, all of that sort of thing. Do you think all of these things now need to come back onto the table to be reconsidered? Oh, absolutely. We are facing an, an entirely different economy, an entirely different uh, political um, proposition. I think it was a little bit disturbing to hear Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, talk about having to cast aside ideological considerations in framing budgets because what does that mean for the way they normally frame budgets? Uh, Putting that to one side, I think we are faced with a situation whereby we are going to have to, to a degree, throw away accepted political and economic orthodoxies. Quite coincidentally, I was meant to be interviewing uh, the uh, ex-governor uh, of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, uh, on stage at the Sydney Writers' Festival on his new book, and, of course, he's not coming to Australia in May now, and the book is called Radical Uncertainty, Policy Making for an Unknown Future. He wrote that at the end of last year and he talked about, uh, with his co-author, talked about the possibility of pandemics throwing us all off course. And he talked about the fact that economics is not a, uh, economists are not like physicists, he says. You know, they're not dealing with absolute formulas that always conform in the same way. And so we have to be prepared to shift our thinking. And I think with regards to the response to COVID-19, we are going to have to bring to bear, as every new era does after the Second World War, after the First World War, after the Great Depression, the GFC and other shocks, it requires new prescriptions based on the prevailing social, cultural, economic and political realities. And one of the things I mean by that is it's a nonsense to be comparing World War II Uh, parameters to ours because most women did not participate in the paid workforce back then as one, just one social difference that's enormous. And, you know, we have to take into consideration things like you touched on, Mark, where we're all working from home and proving it's possible. Not only is it possible, it's entirely Uh, You know, in some regards, my job, potentially your job, can be done exactly the same. Not exactly the same in my case, but, you know, as long as you've got a a comfortable workplace and it's, you know, distraction-free and you can work whenever you are most disposed to, see all these sorts of things. We've been talking about flexible work for so long and people have taken it as 
are, are not very important issue. These things will change. Where we work will change. Do we need to spend a lot of money on city office real estate? That will change. The thinking about travel. When I did the Italian piece about how life was changing in Milan, it was very moving to hear teenage boys say, Dad's home. He normally, you know, is the head of a manufacturing company and splits his time between home and a thousand other countries, but now he's doing everything from the living room and we love having him at home. So these dynamics are going to change. It's going to change travel. It's going to change supply chains. Yes, I think we're going to have to see, and I interviewed uh, Mervyn King, the ex-governor of the Bank of England for ABC News last week, and he said, yes, we are invariably going to see um, supply chains move closer to home base because of the reliability factor. If it's going to cost you a little bit more, you'll think, well, we're going to see more pandemics. So maybe if it's going to cost a little more, I don't mind if it means reliability and, uh, and, uh, and you know, um, predictability. So, Maria, what are your thoughts about the way politics might change? It seems to me that these restrictions on movement and everything else, when coupled with the advances advances in digital communications, well, they've really forced the pace of change. Could it alter the way we do and look at politics, democracy, parliament, the way government is organised, even the way we work right across the economy? I mean, all of these changes are sort of hothoused by this crisis. Well, I think, I think it's obvious that... Um aspects of our lives will definitely change. And um, I guess what is sort of perhaps different from uh, the sort of post-war reconstruction example given before was that at the time of post-war reconstruction or so, or rather at the time of uh, World War II, you know, democratic governments made a, a compact with their peoples having suffered through the Great Depression um, and to basically sort of say, we need you to fight this war against fascism. And in, in exchange for that, we will we will change the way business is done in our countries, and the experience of war, the um, the whole sort of like reshaping of the economy, did lead to a politics of of never again, um, which you know is the sort of post war settlement. Now we don't necessarily have that compact in place now, but what we do have is an enormous amount of disruption and that is uh, more so the case in countries overseas than in Australia because of the Great Recession. But if you just sort of look at, at Australia and what's going on here, you know, our, 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 our politics, the, the debates that we've been having now for the last sort of decade are, are increasingly structured around what we've now come to call intergenerational inequality. This is usually framed around housing, right? Can people afford housing, um, you know, um, rather than a divide between, say, classes, right, which is how it might have been thought about before. And so for the government, right, at a time of COVID-19 where it really hangs a lantern on the intergenerational inequality about who gets sick and who is making sacrifices to protect those most at risk. There's like a new added moral set of arguments added to the mix of this intergenerational policy debate, you know, policy debates, policy problems framed in intergenerational inequality terms. And so this crisis is a real opportunity for the government in the sense that it's allowed it a reset, particularly 
given the bushfire crisis and particularly given they didn't really have much of an agenda. So they've got a lot of freedom to decide what to do. But what is not clear, and we can only know by living through these times, is whether or not they will actually sort of have the, the sort of vision or the skill set to actually pick a path through rather than be led, you know. And it sort of comes down to what has the Prime Minister kind of and his government learnt during this crisis and will it actually flow through to decisions after the crisis, right? Uh, what's the relationship with the public service like now? Are they more inclined to listen? Does that mean that they're more open to ideas from from Treasury, for example. Um, and ultimately, based on what happens overseas, what is the scope for them to actually define the crisis going forward so they can set their own reform agenda? And will they be able to really um, defend the status quo, which is effectively their status quo? You know, the Liberal Party has been in government for most of the 21st century and we're, we're au fait with most of the changes the Hawke government made. Like this is their consensus. So these are the things that we'll kind of see whether or not they'll be able to defend that status quo. Such terrific questions that you line up there, things like uh, whether they will start to look at expertise differently, uh, say science, scientific advice, uh, as we know, it's been a, a big issue around the climate change debate. Um but, of course, it's been driving government policy through this COVID crisis. Uh, and as you say, all of the uh, ideas for restructuring the economy, for restructuring the, the federal budget, many of those ideas are going to need to come from the public service. You know, we, some of us fondly remember the idea of the public service as a sort of an ideas machine, not just service delivery. Uh, perhaps we could see a return to some of that, actually, uh, the public service really coming up with innovative ways to change things. I mean, I think that is an important uh, reform going forward for the public service because, I mean, we have seen over several decades now the public service lose expertise and lose the capacity to uh, to think for itself rather than to be reliant on um, consultants and perhaps this experience of working with the public service in this way will allow the Liberal Party to see this institution in a in a new light rather than merely a body that delivers the policy agenda that they bring to it that they could actually work collaboratively for the good the good of the nation. Emma, picking up on Maria's points there about inequality and the incentives in our tax system. What reforms would you like to see the government undertake? What are the what are the kind of key things that you think we need to do to shift our the, the the emphases in our in our tax system in particular to drive productivity and to enhance, I guess, equality of opportunity, but also just to to enhance fairness in our system. Um, there are three things in the tax system that I think will definitely need addressing. And following from what Maria was talking about. Uh, I thoroughly agree that intergenerational inequality is a massive issue. Inequality generally in our economies pose great problems going forward. And the three things I think need to be back on the agenda will be, unfortunately, the way superannuation is taxed, which uh, Maria was talking about, um, inheritance tax. I don't know why it's become such a bogeyman of um 
of economics. We're one of the only countries that doesn't have some kind of inheritance tax. It doesn't make sense that, um, and it exacerbates the intergenerational uh, inequality, these wealth transfers, because that, there becomes that big inequality between um, you know, people's incomes and, and people's wealth because they've been given mum and dad's, you know, $20 million house or whatever, tax-free. The other one, of course, is GST. Now, I've been looking at this for a long time and it's always baffled me because when I was the Europe correspondent for the ABC at the time of the financial crisis between 2008 and 2012, I was there, they were very quick to increase their they call it the, the, the value-added tax, the VAT, their consumption taxes, to, uh, to help their economy recover. And for some reason, it's become a no-go zone for Australia such that now the UK's VAT is at 20%, exactly double ours, and the OECD average is 19.3%, while ours is still at 10%. I think we should absolutely revisit that and look at some sort of a stepped system where, of course, essentials like fresh food and medicines and items for children and so on remain GST-free. But a biggest belief why certainly some luxury uh, non-discretionary items are still all only taxed at 10%. I think we absolutely ought to as a matter of urgency revisit the way we uh, the way we uh, levy the GST and it should be broader um, I'm not sure that it uh, that it's broad enough at the moment and it certainly should hit uh, things at the higher end harder Bob what are your thoughts on those three things in particular superannuation concessions inheritance taxes or death duties as they are graphically called by opponents and perhaps that explains why uh, Australia just doesn't seem to be able to do it and GST reform lifting its rate and broadening its scope where are these things on your to-do list they i think all of those things are definitely things that we want to put back into the conversation we have a lot of work to do after the pandemic settles down and government's going to have a really important role to play. And we've learned a lot over the last 100 years, what kind of roles governments do a good job at playing in the economy and what kind of jobs they don't do uh, well at in the economy. So countries that have relied really heavily on governments making decisions about production haven't tended to do very well. But countries where governments have focused on getting those policy settings correct so that the economy can function well and people can achieve well-being, those, those policies, those countries have, have done very well. So there's a really important role for government here in getting the settings right. I want to tie that role of government into the intergenerational equality piece and, and into the tax system if I can weave a slightly more complicated story before I respond to your question. One of the things that is true in Australia is that our tax system relies incredibly heavily on working people who tend to be younger people and who tend and are economically active people. So our reliance on the combination of corporate tax and personal income tax is higher than 
every other country in the OECD except perhaps for Denmark, but we're, we're in the top two in the OECD. And we don't rely much on taxing savings and on taxing assets. And that's partially because of the way that we treat housing. It's also partially because of the way that we treat superannuation. What happened in the wake of the global financial crisis? Well, we wanted to stimulate the economy, so we made money very cheap. We had quantitative easing. We pumped a lot of money into the economy. What that did is that inflated asset prices. We saw it inflate house prices. We saw it inflate share prices. And the reason it did that is that rich people could go to the bank and they could borrow lots and lots of money. And it was very easy for them to pay that off. It was very easy for them to manage the cash flow associated with that debt because interest rates were very low. We are likely to do the very same thing. We're already doing it and we're likely to continue doing it uh, in the wake of the pandemic. So what's the effect of that in our in our system? Well, the effect of that is we drive house prices up, we drive asset prices out, we generate a lot of wealth for people at the top of the income distribution, and then we don't tax it at all. We don't have a land tax on owner-occupied housing. We don't make people spend the money they've put into owner-occupied housing. We don't require that it, you know, we we exclude it from the asset test on the age pension. And as Emma pointed out, we don't have a death duty, so we don't take it away from them when they die. So here we have a set of government Sorry sorry to interrupt you there, Bob, and also don't forget negative gearing. So I would deal with negative gearing in a slightly different way, but but, um, uh, I'm I'm imagining some broader reforms that would actually remove negative gearing from the conversation. But uh, if we don't have time for that today, we'll do another show about that. But um, so, so I guess, you know, here are a set of government policies that are are benefiting one, uh, you know, one set of people, and they're not being asked to pay for those policies at all. Instead, the entire burden of paying for those policies is falling on another set of people. And it would be fine if we all had the same level of wealth, and we all had parents who owned assets. So we would live a life where we paid heaps and heaps of tax between the ages of 20 and 65, and then we wouldn't pay any tax between the ages of 65 and 95. But the problem is that we have this underlying inequality. Some people have assets, some people don't. Some people have parents who have assets, some people don't. And and so, as Emma said, we need to worry about the wealth inequality going forward that these policies generate. So we need a serious rethink of our tax settings. Now, this is the kind of stuff that I say, and then I I get hate mail from people who say, but hang on, you know, I saved up my entire life for this house, and now you want to take it away from me. And I guess so. in in response to that, I think it's important to to say that we don't want to tax people retrospectively. So it's important that whatever policy changes we make, we don't go and say to people, oh, we're going to tax you now for something that we said we weren't going to tax you for in the past. However, I think it's also really important to recognize that we've had this incredible asset price inflation and that this asset price inflation has been a result of of explicit government policies. And it hasn't, for the most part, been the result of people's efforts or hard work. People bought a house. They got lucky. The house price inflated by a million dollars. They didn't do any work to make that happen. Um, It just happened because general asset prices went up. So there is a sense in which I think we can legitimately tax some of that 
and not feel like we're retrospectively taxing people. But this is the kind of debate that we need to have in Australia. And these are difficult questions, right? And they're very politically fraught because as soon as you talk about these things, people come out and say, but this is unfair. You can't take money away from me. You told me you weren't going to do this and now you're changing the settings. But the reality is in public policy that we need to readjust settings when reality changes. We need to change what we do and the way we do things based upon what's happening in the external environment. Emma, there's a saying in politics, never waste a crisis. Perhaps this pandemic emergency does offer the incumbent government an opportunity to revisit some of the things it desperately wanted to do but couldn't, like lowering corporate taxes, but also doing some of those things it had previously forsworn for political branding reasons, things like expanding the GST or inheritance taxes or removing franking credits for those who paid no income tax. In other words, is this a kind of political etch-a-sketch moment where the screen can be erased and fresh lines drawn based on something novel like, you know, the national interest? I think that's an excellent analogy, the etch-a-sketch. Um yeah, I think I think this is a what the the, clay, the slate clean moment, and we need to stop what I think someone dubbed the deficit alarmism. You know, we need to stop fixating about debts and deficits at the moment because, as Bob points out, uh, you know, interest rates have never been lower. We can afford it. That's not to say we push it out to the never never, but it is a good time to be borrowing uh, money. The interest isn't nearly as high as it was even 10 years ago, so we can afford to be borrowing money, but only if we're spending it in the right ways, you know. And I do think we missed an opportunity, frankly, after the global financial crisis to really overhaul uh, the excesses that made the uh, systems operate in a very kind of perverse way back in 2007, 2008. And what I mean by that is things like the remuneration of executives in the financial sector. The financial sector still, I believe, is doing too many things they ought not do. I'd like to see a system where uh, financial finance businesses, uh, I'm loath to just say the banks because it's not just them, banks and investment banks and so on, I want to see them go back to being good at lending money for businesses and households and taking people's money and offering, you know, modest returns on deposits. All these other uh, instruments that have emerged and flourished and continue to do so put our economy increasingly at risk, these uh, bets and gambling. And people are being remunerated, uh, incentivized in their uh, in their salary packages based on performances that most people on the streets would say is wrong. I, you know, what I think is a good performing company is one that looks after all its stakeholders, not just its shareholders. And yet we are still seeing a system where bank executives in particular, but all all throughout the financial sector and elsewhere on our stock exchange, CEOs, because of the uh, short cycle of reporting, the three-monthly cycle, 
they're being incentivized to create quick profits in three to six months so that that satisfies, satisfies the analysts reporting to shareholders. I think a lot needs to change. And I think when we're still seeing executives getting 20 and $30 million and more, we're going to start to ask ourselves, when we're all working the same from home with the same issues of dogs barking and children crying out for help with their homework, is anyone really worth, you know, 40, 50, 100, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 times more than the next person? So that's part of the inequality question that I think we're going to have to confront. And I did back at the 2009, you were there with me, Mark, 2009 um a G20 meeting in London when Barack Obama was um, was in London and I asked him that very question, are we going to need to change the way executives are remunerated? And he said he had every faith that the market would fix it up. Well, the market hasn't fixed it up. No, the market has not, although I think the market's getting a rude shock right at the moment. Look, thank you so much for being with us and for soldiering on through several technical hurdles today and other distractions like Vincent, our occasionally too vocal schnauzer. And just toward the end, even a guy outside my window with a leaf blower. That's a, I can only think there's a level of karma in that because uh, several years ago now, in fact, I think it was before he was treasurer, Joe Hockey got up after question time and complained to the speaker of the House of Representatives about uh, the habit that uh, some of the gardeners at Parliament House had of operating a leaf blower outside his office window early in the morning. And uh, I think I wrote a rather uh, somewhat snarky piece uh, branding him the blowhard, you know, complaining about leaf blowers. <laughs> um, maybe I've been paid back now because I've had this going on in the last uh, few moments of, of this Karma. podcast. And if you could hear that, uh, I apologise. Uh, as I say, it's been a fascinating discussion. Can I thank Emma Alberici, Professor Bob Brunig and Dr. Maria Taflaga for being with us on Democracy Sausage and thank you for listening to us. Join us later in the week for a Democracy Sausage Extra where my guest will be the Shadow Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. And, of course, you can contact, contact us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or via our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Uh, but that's all for now. Thanks for being with us and talk to you again soon. Thank you.